Oh, it's your favorite time of the week. All your work is done, and it's time to relax. So come, grab some friends, and let's get lit and join the rotation. You are now in the rotation with Suncoast Normal. We are your host, your Suncoast Normal Executive Board, and we say it's time to legalize it. Well, it's Sunday, and we're live wherever we are. <laughs> Let's go ahead and get into church because it's time to <laughs> pass and pass the ammunition. It's time to jump into the. I think yeah, I pulled it. Good, it. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, welcome everyone to a very uh, special Sunday broadcast of the rotation. Uh, Carlos is not with us, so we are broadcasting from our virtual studio, not at our typical onsite at Chillum. Uh, but as always, I'm your executive director, Christopher Kano. We got our amazing director of public policy, uh, Gary Stein. Uh, as Gary likes to refer to us, the masters of cannabis. Gary has his master in public health. Uh, Carlos has his uh, business administration. I have mine in public administration, and so we tend to uh, to step up and and inform the public and such. And today we got a very special show. Uh, I want to introduce a very special guest who's going to be joining us in the rotation today, uh, Ms. Connie Burton. Connie, how are you doing today? Uh, good morning. Wonderful. And thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Connie, I, I first encountered and ran into you a little over 10 years ago when I was running for State House myself. We did a, the Al McCray show together one time. And and I remember we were just sitting around uh, talking about uh, just different subjects and, and you know things in the community. And what stuck out to me uh, when I first met you was your passion. Um, for your community, for your family, uh, for your neighborhood. And, and you know, it really, uh, it struck me as like, wow, okay, that's a genuine person. That's someone who cares about what's really going on. You know, in, in politics, you meet so many people who are either superficial or they're so polished that it almost feels like they're faking it. But with you, it was just real. And I, and, and you've never uh, flipped the script, uh, you know, as the kids say. You, you, you've always stayed true to who you are. And now you have the opportunity uh, right now with a, a vacant seat on the Tampa City Council uh, to step up and, and, and you know, uh, you're asking for the council to appoint you to that seat so you can continue to represent our communities. Why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, why there's an open Tampa City Council seat and what's making you want to actually step up and, and be a part of uh, the city council? Okay, so as you know, the Tampa City Council is made up of a seven-member body, and recently uh, the vacancy that was created by the removal or uh, the resignation of Mr. Dingfelder uh, left it open for the city uh, to have to uh, open up that up process for an appointment that would be made by the body of six members to appoint someone to take uh, on that uh, seat for the next 15 months. I feel like this is a wonderful, wonderful occasion uh, for that body to really examine where this city is going and do they have the political courage to do the right thing. It's no doubt that, uh, you know, the body that sits up, up there now, uh, some of them have uh, years of experience uh, with the council, uh, that they are not aware of what's the needed or the missing elements that will make this city uh, be all that it can be. And so it is my hope that if I'm appointed to that board, that I would be that glimmer of, of, of awareness that all is not well in the city. And by this appointment, we would be able to lift uh, the most vulnerable communities of uh, reassuring them that they have not been forgotten or left behind. Well, 
Connie, well said. Um, you know, this is an interesting thing with the city council having to open a seat. You know, there's not going to be an election. They're going to appoint someone. And then when we have the city council elections in 2023, then the seat will be actually up for it. So um, as far as folks getting involved, um, you know, they need to actually email the council and, and really tell the council members, you know, how they feel about your appointment. And folks can actually email Tampa City Council at tampagov.net. That will send an email to every council member and let them know let them know that you support uh connie for city council i understand so. that the first list that came out uh was 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 short and brief and it was basically the, the people that the current city council wants to have on so in my opinion who are the first people we should eliminate <laughs> <laughs> we, we are so tired well, of, of, well it's, it's a matter of, of crony uh crony politics Oh, you know, always get your friends there, not necessarily the person who represent the people better. And uh, that's why I feel, okay, now that that list is done with, Connie's on top of my list. But well, thank I, I like, you so like, much. Well, if you can find somebody's core values just by scraping them with a nail file, they aren't true, okay? <laughs> so you got to find people who, who, who are same, you know, deep, deep down. You have more skin in the game that most folks understand because you've been put into a lot of different situations where you've had to fight city hall essentially. And exactly. And you know, um, you know, I don't dismiss people's uh, career choices and path, uh, their, you know, uh, different degree uh, in terms of their uh, continual education. I think that is all great. But like you say, when it comes to having skin in the game, I'm representing a core group of, of people that the city has a knowledge uh, through a recent resolution that they pulled together uh, in 2020 that talk about the egregiousness of the city's failure to deal with uh, overt and comfort uh, racism that has existed in this city. And whether it was deliberate, intentional or not, it is here. And so we have to say, how do we start unpacking this so that all, and especially those in my community that have lived up under the veil of hopelessness by seeing uh, a social agenda being created that was not intended to lift people up out of poverty. This city has the ability to do all of that. This council, just based on their experience and their professional realm, also their connections with other community, they have seen how one side of the city has prospered, as well as the constant decades of neglect in the community. And so we're saying that if you want to activate and hold true to what you, writ you wrote in a resolution, to come to a reality for all of the people, I would be your chosen choice. I would be the choice. That's good. You know, I love local politics. I always say that state politics is the uh, the meth lab of democracy. Uh, but as far as local politics is concerned, it's always about like being a local soap opera because everybody is so close. We're all in the same basic area that. You, you see a lot of different connections back and forth, and you never know what's going to happen next. I mean, and, I, and I'll grant you, there is a lot of corruption, so I hear, in Tallahassee. And that does filter down to the local level as well. But the local level, it's harder to hide it than it is over in Tallahassee. So if you mm -hmm. make a mistake, like, like uh, my good friend John Dingfelder, I mean, he had to deal with a, a mess up between his private life and his city council life. And you can't do that. And unfortunately, these city council positions are not full-time positions. You can't live off of them. But, but uh, you, you do have some 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 kind of characterization. You've got sorry. <laughs> I got a cat. Did I lose you? No. No, we see you, Gary. And yeah, Gary, you know, I, w I wanted to say that, you know, uh, Dingfelder leaving the city council um, over some emails and, and public disclosures is unfortunate. And now, you know, the chair of the city council, uh, Orlando Goods, has been embroiled in, in some issues. And it just seems to me that I'm starting to see a pattern of anyone who opposes Mayor Castor's agenda looks like whatever there is in their burn file is coming up to, you know, to the surface. 
So, you know, uh, I think, Connie, when I said earlier, you know, what you get with you is what you get. You know, you keep it real. Um, I think that's the most important thing in all of this is that uh, there's integrity um, in in you as a person. There's integrity in you as an activist. And so we don't have to worry about the mayor trying to to put up a burn file or anything. I think uh, you being appointed to council probably scares the mayor more than anything. You've been an active uh, voice against, you know, the mayor's policies when she was police chief and, and targeting uh, uh, members of your community. Uh, you've been active in, in, in pointing out the cronyism that we've seen, you know, in, in the mayor's uh, uh, current appointments uh, with the new police chief. Can you talk more about, you know, the issues that you've seen over the past few years in this city uh, that, that Jane Castor seems to think uh, is going stellar, but it's not going stellar for everybody, is it? Uh, no, it's not. And like you said, uh, when you see me, uh, hear me, you, you know what you're going to get politically. Uh, I am unwavering toward my commitment uh, transforming the lives of, of marginal communities. And I do not run away from the fact that I believe in Black love and Black power. I believe in uh, all people having power over their lives in the sense that Uh, we should have a right to say uh, what policies are impacting us in negative ways and what is working for us. And so things that has not worked for us, has worked for us in uh, in the African-American community is this thing called over-policing. It has not worked. What it has did, uh, it's really brought tremendous harm to the community of the way it is dysfunctional by the removal of so many adult men in our community. Uh, We've seen like uh, biking while black uh, was not helpful. Uh, The multi-housing crime-free that tracks and targeted uh, communities for nonviolent offenses, uh, landlords getting that information and moving against it. We have witnessed a terrible social engineering policies, whether it was, in my opinion, every level of government where millions and millions of dollars have been spent toward programs that the people themselves knew would not work, but because it held up various administration, it gave people's jobs, it gave power. Now what we're looking at, the end result of that. We're looking at young people that believe that the only way out of the situation that they're confronted with every day is through violence. We have almost the same veil that Dr. King talked about, a feeling of being nobody, coupled on hopelessness, and then seeing at the ham, our communities are being gentrified at a rapid number that don't simply mean putting houses in a community where uh, people in the community can't afford, but it cuts deeper than that. It, it, it removes culture, it removes memory uh, of those communities. It, 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 it destroys relationship. And so why it looked good on paper and become good talking points for politicians and those that will run in the future, the people in our community has been uh, come to a realization that politics is a dirty game and that most of the players is not um, uh, valued. And and that's why we see just a small uh, percentage of young people that even want to participate in a smallest uh, opportunity like getting out the vote. So we are saying impacted people and impacted communities uh, have to be at the table. Our voices have to be respected. And those that represent our position have a responsibility to be truth tellers. And so in my resume ain't gonna be no, I went to uh, no prestigious school I respect everybody that does that, but I get all my grading from the community. If I am there to advocate, I'm supposed to move uh, like I'm a Harriet Tubman. 
are supposed to be able to help our communities see a way out of this misery that we're in. I'm supposed to be able to speak in the voice of a Marcus Garvey that when economic opportunity working for all people and we see sweetheart deals going to certain developers, I have a responsibility to speak to that. And then when we see over sentencing and the criminalization and the lack of relationships between communities and people, and communities are feeling as if they're under occupation, I have a responsibility to speak to that. Well, Connie, I want to take a moment here. You know, um, our chapter of, of Normal uh, met with city council members a few years back, um, advocated for them to adopt a decriminalization ordinance because we felt as though, you know, like you said, over-policing is something that happens in Tampa. And we wanted the police to have one more toolbox, in, you know, one more tool in their toolbox to where they can avoid saddling people with criminal records for something as simple mm -hmm. as, as cannabis possession. What, what I have issue with is, um, you know, the fact that it's, it, it allows the officer on scene uh, to have that discretion to do that. And oftentimes what we'll see is officer discretion is something that is not necessarily used uh, for black and brown kids, but, but, but for those kids who live across Kennedy Boulevard. And, and, exactly. and you know live on Bayshore and such and and so um you know as a, as a city council member um you know would would you have voted uh for that ordinance would you have voted for decriminalization all 100 percent and then when I see you know uh cannabis shops opening smoke shops opening all over the community, and then the language that uh, don't give opportunity for employment into that, I would question that. You know, I just saw yesterday, I believe, uh, that this uh, Congress was is attempting to decriminalize uh, marijuana on the federal level, and it's not getting any traction in the Senate. And so when we have all of this imbalance that on one hand, it becomes a money-making tool for a new generation of, of young people that is able to get the licenses and open up the shop, then what does it say that it is, I don't know, uh, if, if, it's a, if it's a new marijuana that's made out of space, uh, uh, the potency of the marijuana, it is marijuana. And then yet in our communities, uh, it is discretion on how the officer might view if he feel like writing up a citation, coupled with you driving with suspended license. You know, it has been a downward spiral. And right now, when we have so many jobs and trades that is gone fulfilled, this would be an opportunity for courageous people to say, you know what, let's admit that that pathway to criminalization and using that as a tool was not the best to our advantage toward the future of any city or any, you know, government. It, if, if we got so many people in our community now is prevented from moving into certain employment opportunities based on nonviolent offenses, but yet we need pools of people to fulfill these jobs. It seemed like it takes courage to say that has not been the right approach and we want to readdress that. When, we, when you have a market that is overly regulated, the only thing you can do to, to, for the people to have them survive is give them more opportunities to, uh, to go beyond it, to get immunity from some of mm -hmm. these laws if, so, if they need it. Like for instance, when Chris here's dad was ill, he went and got him some medicine. And even though that was a righteous trip, a righteous reason to get medicine, they, you, you, he was arrested and uh, had to had enjoy the system for a while, so to speak. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Gary, you know, part of that is, is there's so much more to unpacking what happened to me. Um, you know, I was pulled over and they said I had a taillight out. And what, one thing that stuck to me the most was that as they were towing my car away, uh, I, I could see that, that my, my, my brake lights, my taillights were operating just fine uh, on the tow truck. And the way they used the civil forfeiture um, uh, statutes to, to take my car from me, take my laptop, take my cell phone. You know, and then and then more than that, um, you know, I had to go in front of the court and and then I was I was court ordered to rehab. Then I got to see the behind the scenes of how the rehab program uh, at DACO uh, mixes with our criminal justice system and how unelected uh, bureaucrats that work for a nonprofit uh, have people freedom in their hand. And then, you know, we were just talking about uh, folks with suspended driver's license. You know, we charge in Florida can get your license suspended. And uh, and the county itself is, is finally stepping up and, and trying to help folks get it reinstated. You know, I got a link here on the screen for folks. You can get your driver's license reinstated right now. And the county does have uh, uh, some spots coming up uh, with these workshops with Operation Greenlight. But I think I it's important. Yeah, I think it's important uh, that we realize that the consequences of a marijuana arrest, as Connie says, can spiral out of control. And unless you have the money, unless you, you, you know, because rich people have no problem with, with beating the weed charge. It, it's folks who, who are impoverished. It's folks who live in working class neighborhoods that have those issues. I mean, the truth be told, if it wasn't for the fact that the day I bonded out, when I got home, I opened up the mail and there was a brand new credit card in the mail I had applied for. I was like, thank God the lawyer takes visa because there was no <laughs> way that I was going to be a felony cannabis charge uh, without, you know, legal representation because the public defender's office is woefully overbooked and and underfunded, if you will. Yeah, you you mentioned a very big word there, representation. We are supposed to be in a representative government, which means basically the ruling by the people. That's what democracy is all about. Now, that's the opposite end of the scale from oligarchy, which is basically ruled by a few. So we're supposed to have people in government that represent us. And that shows that we have two main problems, two main threats to representative government. The first, of course, is apathy. When, the, when people don't go out there and vote, and so therefore they lose their right to be represented, unfortunately. So if you hear someone say, my vote doesn't make any difference, I'll say, well, don't vote. Wait till the next guy comes in who destroys your living, and then you'll realize maybe it did. Mm-hmm. But you just didn't go about it. And the other one, of course, is, Again, it's a representative government, but the, if you look at these bodies that, that run, even just the city, and ask yourself, does that group represent the city? Is the, the, the diversity in that group the same as the diversity outside of City Hall? So mm-hmm. they will understand the problems of the people that are going forward. And I mm-hmm. say that those people who have, have wealth have a certain amount of um, division from real life, if you remember, uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, and towards the end of his presidency, they asked him what the price of a, a gallon of milk was, and he couldn't answer it. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. They took him to a grocery store. He had never seen self-serve scanners, scanners before. It's like, wow, what are these people doing? Are they walking out with, with there's, no, there's no cash here? Yeah, so you can't be um, disengaged from the public that you're supposed to serve. And you have had, uh, Connie, a number of issues that, came forward that took years to resolve. Talk a little bit what happened in, in 2002 in, in public housing. Oh, well, uh, based on a federal, well, a federal s- statute through the whole crime bill uh, created by uh, Biden and Clinton at the time started perhaps with good intention, uh, but it said essentially that anyone living in public housing, whether they was a defendant or not, your guests, your friends, your family, arrested in or uh, after visiting you, you would be held responsible for their criminal activity. So, you know, it took me years to put all the pieces together. So what happened? is basically I was a resident council president and we talked about all of the economic means that the housing authority and its partners had in counting our communities based on poverty 
the ability to receive grants and federal assistance, you know, tremendously. Uh, the Housing Authority, based on some of the fine print, it talked about uh, that if they did business with uh, anyone, they had a, uh, I don't know what the policy number is now, a obligation to hire residents from within inside of our community. And so being the president at the time, I advocated for employment of young people that were standing in and around in our community. Some of them was our sons, daughters, husbands, boyfriends, et cetera, that if we gave these young people an opportunity, then we could start breaking the cycle. Well, I could tell you that it was a lot of resistance uh, from that just easy thinking concept uh, presented to the housing authority. Uh, immediately after the young men were identified, a lot of them based on their ages, they had left home. Uh, they had to be tied to our lease, even though the agency knew they did not live with us. And so my son, along with six, five other young men, was arrested for the sale of $25 worth of marijuana. That's not $25 each. That means all six of them was responsible through conversation that someone came and wanted to buy a, a $25 worth amount of marijuana. Somebody had five, uh, one sack, uh, one $5 bag, another one had another $5 bag, or somebody even just might have encouraged somebody to go in that direction. But nonetheless, it was all arrested. My son was arrested uh, in this uh, sting. The federal government, Department of HUD, had given the uh, local police department a half a million dollar uh, budget to carry out these drug arrests. And so when uh, the Housing Authority went to seek my eviction, I said, no, I wasn't going. I was able to, based again on my advocacy, I had an attorney, a wonderful attorney at the time that agreed to represent me. I told him that if he represented me, he had to take us as a class action because none of the other women's had the ability to find an attorney. The case was resolved with the housing authority agreeing to allow all five of the other women to remain on some type of public assistance, whether they left Robles Park or went through a, a Section 8 voucher. But for me, they was hell-bent on seeking an eviction. They was hell-bent on seeking a public execution. And so I was just as determined to show the community that democracy don't exist, that justice and truth and Rehabilitation don't exist for all of us. So we took the case, uh, Guy Burns was my attorney. We took the case from the uh, county level to the state level, county level. Uh, we had a trial. Uh, the judge threw the conviction out on a mistrial. We ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court with the case. Uh, it took them almost... Um, uh, half a million dollars and six years to win an eviction. But it was all necessary on, I believe for me, uh, to help the community understand what injustice looked like as it relates to poor people, uh, to what extent on a local level people will go to uh, demoralize you, uh, to do some, you know, uh, and you know, we went through it, we survived it, and we kept on going. And you had, you are, uh, I guess, lost the case first time, and you appealed, and you went forward. How many years did this thing go on before it finally came to a conclusion? Uh, we started. It, it, it took about. Six years. It took about six to be concluded.
was debated uh, in around 2005, in 2005, and uh, it and I had to leave the city of Tampa because I couldn't find anybody to rent. And I went to St. Petersburg and I stayed over there uh, for about, you know, the, I came back to 2008. It was a minute. Yeah, the, the wheels of justice grind far too slowly, especially for situations where people can suddenly become homeless. And obviously it's far more urgent. And there is obviously, as, as they t I talk about in the appellate court, and, and a uh, issue of apparent permanent harm by, by dragging this thing out. Yeah. And it, it happens. And I think people who have to have that experience behind them, when, when they get in the government, so they know what it feels like and they know why things have to get fixed. I mean, that's basically the yeah. issue we have here. And Tampa, as I mentioned before, it's not exactly representative of, of the state, of the, uh, the, the city. Uh, how many uh, how many white folks are there in the uh, city council right now out of the five the city councilmen? Uh, right now, presently, uh, only one African-American is there, and that's Orlando Goo. Uh, he represents District 5, which is the most impoverished uh, district in the city. And there are no women currently on the council. I think, you know, Connie, you'll bring an interesting perspective as a mother uh, to the council. I think I think that's something that the council's lacking right now uh, is is that level of, uh, of, of discernment and, and just uh, energy that you can bring. And, you know, I've been in, uh, in, in interviews and roundtables and, and debates with you before, and, and I know you can bring it uh, with the best of them. So I, I hope that the council does the right thing. I mean, over a hundred other community supporters and activists, I mean, there really has been a, a, a grassroots, uh, you know, coalition building around you uh, since we, you know, this opportunity uh, to step up and get you appointed uh, to the Tampa City Council has come up. And I think it's important for the listeners and everyone watching, uh, they can go to Tampa City Council at tampagov.net uh, and send an email to that address. It will let all the city council members know through that one email and let them know that, uh, you know, we want to see Connie uh, appointed to the city council. Now, Connie, when is these appointments going down? Can you tell everybody so they can they can tune into the council meeting? Yes, so we will uh, have a interviewing process will be on the 5th, uh, starting at 9 a.m., uh, it's going in alphabetical order. We have two minutes to give a presentation, and I am speaker number two. Is there any chance for uh, public input? No, not at this time. I think uh, everything that Chris has laid out in terms of people calling, but it'll come down to uh, these six gentlemen, you know, making the final decision. Uh, you know, based on however they come to their determination on who would be the best fit. But let me just say this. Whether I'm on, uh, elected, uh, to be appointed to be on that council, I feel very, very encouraged whether it is an up or down vote. It's an up for the people because the people is very clear on whom they would like to represent them. If the council refused to hear the voices of the community, and not whether people called in or not, but just looking at the conditions in which the majority of the African-American community continue to uh, live in, uh, continue to be, uh, as they say, uh, the last hired and the first fired, to see our children still performing uh, under uh, uh, low attendance in school, people still living with inside of our community in uh, subsidized apartments that cannot pass a, a, beer, uh, a mere HUD inspections, uh, the community violence uh, that is raging in the community, they haven't been able to solve these problems. They have not been able to solve this problem. So it seemed to me that the best choice would be not somebody that, you know, can brandish a PhD, but somebody who can give them uh, insight as to how we can start moving forward. That these are the most perplexed issues that we have right now in the city of Tampa. Not if the raise is gonna come here, but how can we have a good quality of life?
for everyone in this city. And if they can't see the value of me being amongst them to help charter this, this course that we're in, then I feel bad for them, but then it would be a good indicator to the people as to whom should continue to represent us in the long term. This is an opportunity for them to spend their political capital on the people, you know, and do the right thing. And that's what we're hoping for on Tuesday. Well, well said, Connie. And and uh, again, everyone, you know, between now and Tuesday, take the time to email the Tampa City Council. Tell them that uh, you'd like them to appoint Connie Burton uh, to the council, to the open seat, which is a citywide seat. I think it's awesome that you'll have the opportunity to represent uh, everyone in the city. And I think the most important thing uh, that you said there here today is exactly that. It's, it's not that we need someone uh, who has some some unique, uh, you know, ivy ivory tower perspective but someone who's actually uh in the neighborhood someone who can roll up their sleeves get their hands dirty and actually fix the issues that we're seeing um you know one of the things that that recently stuck out to me is uh you know like you said we touched on the rays come to tampa um but the gentrification of, of Tampa's neighborhoods from from Ebor City uh, to, you know, to Tampa Heights uh, through West Tampa, you know, housing prices are skyrocketing. And, and the sad part is I read an article the other day that showed that there are millions of empty homes uh, throughout the state of Florida, you know, and, and that there are uh, foreign real estate investors coming into this country, buying up houses, preventing, uh, you know, a, an entire generation of millennials who are now of age in their 30s. And, and, you know, some millennials are getting ready to be 40 in a couple of years and, and, and actually uh, being able to purchase a home and live that American dream. I mean, my parents uh, at 25 were able to purchase a house. House, you know, where, where they're at today uh, and, and, and raise a family uh, for me to do that same thing and, and have that same house, uh, you know, w- would cost me 10 times as much as what they paid in the 80s. And, and then on top of that, you have a whole generation that was told, go to college, you know, get an education. You're going to need that. And now people have, you know, five and six figure student loan debt uh, holding them back from even getting a home loan. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the city of Tampa should not just be for the wealthy and the well-to-do. Uh, and, and it seems like in, in a lot of ways, that's the way in which we're headed. And, and so I'm glad that you'll, you know, we can get you, you know, on the, if we can't get you on the council, love to have you there as a voice. And if the council chooses to not do right by the people, not appoint you, then, you know, I know you'll still be a voice there at the council meetings, holding them accountable. And I think that's, that's important for us as a people is we got to step up. We got to be more involved. I mean, you know, um, so often I see when we go to those public comments uh, in city council meetings, it, you can count on the same 10 people probably showing up most of the time. And, <laughs> uh, and we, we need more people to show up uh, and, and let these folks know that we're paying attention. Uh, you know, especially when I saw most recently around uh, them appointing a police chief who doesn't even respect the police, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, having a police chief that, uh, you know, and, and no problem whipping the cop's ass. And I think that, that is that is says a lot because if they, if they don't respect it, uh, how are we going to have them clean up that department? Uh, how, you know, and, and that's the thing that's irritated me about Mayor Castor uh, ever since she was the chief, that she won't admit that she has bad apples. She won't admit that they over-police. She won't admit that there are people who in her department uh, have no ethics and that they, they don't live up to the standards of, of the badge that they, the, in, in the oath that they've taken and they abuse their power. And so we need uh, you know people on the community willing to step up. You know, Connie, I know you've been an advocate for the uh, uh, Citizens Review Board. I know I've seen you out there, you know, advocating to give us some teeth. Uh, do you think that that's you know? I mean, there's a number of issues that you could tackle in the council, but could you give the folks maybe your your top three issues that you want to see tackled uh, when you get on the council? Should should you be appointed? Well, number one, gonna definitely be the housing crisis. To look at ways in which we can be creative. Uh, and move uh, city government to be more responsive uh, quickly, a quick response to dealing with this, uh, declaring it a state of war. I mean, a state of emergency, Uh, whatever adjective adverbs we have to attach to this creation of homelessness, 
and overpricing of houses in our community has to be number one, economic opportunities for all. Uh, we don't need any additional um, dead end training apprentice programs that we have to incentivize developers and business that's coming in, that's receiving equity, uh, maybe some type of, uh, of uh, point system that if they agree to do uh, training that has a long-term employment opportunity, these are the amenities that the city will partner with you. Uh, and lastly, the council don't have, uh, in my opinion, uh, outside of the arrest component, but this criminalization of so many brown and black men and women in our community is not healthy. It is not healthy for our community. And so the city and the council looking at ways in which it can partner and have real honest, honest, hard, cold, uncomfortable conversations within the realm of the police department and the state attorney's office is a must. Well stated, Connie. Well, you know, when you, you brought up just now about a, a state of emergency and, and we're actually experiencing a, a state emergency here in Florida uh, when it comes to our medical marijuana system. And, you know, I know Tuesday you'll be uh, going before the Tampa City Council, but for many folks, they don't know that on Tuesday, uh, the Florida Office of Medical Marijuana Use is actually planning on rolling out caps to limit how much medicine people can get access to. And so uh, for those of you who you know might be at home watching, I think it's important that uh, we send a clear message to Governor Ron DeSantis because he's the one who get you know who, who's in charge of the executive branch. The Office of Medical Marijuana Use reports to the Department of Health, which reports directly to him. And so you know, folks can see in the chat there. Uh, we need people to send a message and an email to Ron DeSantis. Hands off our medicine. Uh, these methods of ingestion caps are not right. For many patients, uh, they can see their their allotment of, of medical marijuana cut in half, and it's going to force people uh, to go into the black market and, 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 and seek it. So, Gary, uh, you know, any any thoughts there about, uh, you know, what we need to do other than sending emails to DeSantis? What else can we do? Can we vote him out of office this, this November? <laughs> I think you're on mute, brother. There you go. Sorry about the cat. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, we have issues in, in, in the local area that oftentimes can be preempted by state laws. And we have a number of situations when that happens. And this is, this is one of them. We could possibly take care of it locally like they do over in California where every county has their own laws. Or we can have a, a sweeping law that prevents that from happening. And right now they're, they're messing with the, uh, the entire state. The state of Florida is actually the third largest cannabis market in the country, and yet we don't have adult use. This is strictly a medical market. These the people in Tallahassee never realized just how robust the the uh, the, the community that uses cannabis will be. Originally, uh, Amy Baker, who is the uh, statistician and, and a financial person over in Tallahassee, said the market would cap out at five hundred fifty thousand, and that would be the maximum it would possibly get to. We hit 700,000 this last year. And so it is making the people over in Tallahassee concerned because they thought that they had crippled the program enough that it wouldn't grow. But it continues to grow for the very basic reason that people need their medicine. And what this is going to do is going to take, uh, for those people who need a lot, who are up at the top of their allotment, are going to have to cut back and get that product from someplace else. Now, there's a lot of folks in the legacy market who put out, very nice uh, product, but they want to sell legally, but because of the way the regulations are right now in Florida, they're not being allowed to sell legally. They are the ones who are caring for that, for that uh, bud to make certain that there's no pesticides in it, that it's grown properly, there's no mold in it. And that actually sometimes makes it better than the stuff that's actually in the, the dispensaries right now. Exactly. Some of these dispensaries are selling straight boof. Yeah, but the thing is, if you go to the, uh, I mean, I'm talking to all the folks out here. If you have to go to the legacy market because of this ruling, let your, your like let your legislators know 
you're for, they're forcing you to do something that may get you in trouble just to save your life. And use the word may and you, you go hypothetical. You don't want to go all crazy on you. But go ahead and let them know exactly how it affects you personally. That is what is really needed. I mean, I love advocates who talk about we need to talk about the whole community. That's true. But the community is made of people and the people's stories are very, very impactful. So if you, ha- if you are personally uh, affected by this, contact your local representative, contact your, your uh, senator from your district and tell them this can't be. I mean, the whole thing just smells funny. I'll be honest with you. They, they, they were given emergency rule writing uh, permission. What's the emergency? Where's the fire? Why do they all of a sudden, after what, four years of this program running, do they realize, hey, you know something? Those people who are using more than 24,500 uh, milligrams a, a month, we got to cut them back. Well, you guys, you're not the bartender telling them that they're too drunk to drive home. You're telling, you're telling people that of the money, medicine you need, we're only going to let you have about 80% of it. And, and they're not just capping the 70-day supply. They're also trying to cap your daily supply as well with these emergency rules, right? Absolutely. And they're, they're talking about 2,400, uh, 24,500 every 70 days, which for many people is uh, below what their allowance is right now. And we have to protect those folks, and we have to make certain they go forward. Now, there's something else out there right now that uh, I, I mentioned before. Normal had put out an article this last week, uh, maybe a week and a half ago, saying that the, the whole concept of having fentanyl in cannabis is an urban myth. And for many, many years, it has been. It was strictly something that was broadcast by uh, treatment centers and law enforcement, trying to keep, get people to, to back up. Unfortunately, with the prevalence of fentanyl in the market right now, and again, they always tell say folks that uh, cannabis is a, a gateway drug. It is not, obviously. But in a way that it is, that if you're getting it from a, a uh, the guy in the back of the bar, so to speak, he's not going to try to sell you just butt. He's going to try to sell you whatever else he has, you know? Like, yeah, here's a nice eighth, but wouldn't you like one of these Xanax bars kind of thing? And that is where eventually they get to the point where they can sell a product that may they may even be selling you fentanyl directly. But if they are involved in, in fentanyl trafficking, that powder, which only takes you know 0.1 milligram to be fatal, can be in your in the bag of the uh, stuff you just bought, just as dust. And if you take that that bud and ground it up with your fingers, and you put it you put it in a in a, a joint, and you put it to your mouth, well, the heat will kill anything that's in the flower. But you had it on your hands, and then you lick the joint to make it to to, uh, to harden it. So you have it on your fingers, and you're putting it in your mouth. That's where you get burned, and uh, that is why it's not necessarily an urban myth. It, it's very rare that it happens, but it does happen. A friend of mine in Zephyr Hills went and bought something from a guy in the back of the corner of a bar, not too far from them. By the end of that night, all three people in that house were dead. And so if wow. you are using the legacy market, know who you're buying from. Yeah, research your plug, definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> ask, ask some questions. Well, you know, Gary, there's a lot of uh, developments, a lot of news happening uh, recently, so I think it's time. You know, gone are the days when misinformation was not just the name of the lady you talked to when you dialed 411. That is a real thing, by the way. (laughs) But we have a lot of misinformation campaigns out there, and sometimes they parade as journalism. Uh, One of the main stations here in this last week uh, put out an ad talking about how there is dangerous edibles in the market with with Delta 8 that are being given to kids under the age of 21 and messing with their minds. And uh, this woman who is a friend of mine I used to work with when she was with uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving and Taking Care of Tobacco, doing some great things. But right now she's doing things like this, where she basically went into a convenience store or a gas station, this uh, 40 plus lady, 40 years old plus lady, and bought a nerd rope and some uh, Skittles, or actually called Tittles for some odd reason, and a little bag of 10 gummy bears. And she said, these are being marketed to kids like candy. Well. First off, let's talk about the price. The average nerd rope is about $20 out there. What kid has $20 to buy a nerd rope and doesn't realize the, the price differential? You think they're really going to buy that thinking it was candy 
Well, it's also, like, it's behind the counter. It's not in the candy aisle. <laughs> the Delta 8 stuff is, is behind the glass. <laughs> that's right. And I doubt any kid's going to spend six bucks on a package of, of 10 gummy bears in a little tiny zip bag. So, you no, know, kids don't have access to it. But they went one point further and mentioned the fact that there was a family that came here from Ohio and uh, they went to some smoothie place called Groovy Smoothie somewhere in Tampa. And the kid went into the refrigerated case and took out a cake pop and said, can I have this? And the kids and the parents supposedly said, sure, go ahead, unwrap it and we'll, we'll pay for it later. I don't know if anybody told that person that that cake pop cost six bucks. I don't think that they would have bought it for them if they were, or they even bothered to look at the damn thing and, and realize it said that it contained Delta 8 THC in it. But supposedly the, this three-year-old kid took a bite out of it. And then they, they segued to a picture of the kid lying in a hospital bed uh, saying he was on a, a IV drip all night long, uh, crying out that there's spiders crawling all over him. But the picture they showed was a kid quietly sleeping in a hospital bed with a pulse oximeter on his finger. There was no IV. The kid was still in his street clothes, so he wasn't really admitted. And uh, they just wanted to, I guess, pump up the situation. Most likely, the kid stayed overnight. They observed him sleeping all night long and then went home. But when you go ahead and add the misinformation to it, that makes things more difficult for us because we know we are dealing with a situation where there are folks trying to knock down the market, as it were. And if they have to use misinformation to do it, they will. They have done it many times before. Drug-free Florida, I often call it truth-free Florida because they have oftentimes put out ads that really were misleading. And we can't mislead the public. That is why when a ballot initiative comes forward, it goes to the Supreme Court and they, and they say whether or not the ballot initiative is misleading the public. We must not mislead the public. That's why they, they make certain the ballot me measures are ones that everybody understands. And that is basically what we're, what we're coming to right now. That is my rant for the day. But let me just tell folks, stay safe. Well, you know, we got uh, uh, some interesting developments. I want to give folks some updates here from the Beltway. Uh, you know, one of the most uh, impactful things that happened this week, the House of Representatives in a historic vote in the, only the second time in 50 years, uh, Congress has voted uh, to repeal fan, uh, federal cannabis prohibition uh, by passing the Moore Act. And uh, I am just, you know, happy to see Congress moving forward. Now, is this bill perfect? No, it has a 5% uh, tax, uh, you know, on, on cannabis at the federal level, an excise tax. Uh, we had Representative Nancy Mason last week uh, who had, you know, told us that, uh, you know, she, uh, her bill only has a 3% tax. So, you know, in, in regards to issues with taxing, uh, you know, that's a major issue there uh, that, that, that we have. But also, uh, you know, I think it's important that now that it goes on to the Senate, uh, the Senate needs to step up and do, you know, do their part and, and give it a hearing. Uh, what we're seeing, though, is that later this month, uh, the Cannabis Administration Opportunity Act, which is being sponsored by the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, is going to be introduced. And if you know anything about politicians, uh, they tend to be very uh, egotistical. They want to get their bill passed. So will the Act go anywhere in the Senate? Uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, some folks are politically uh, cynical and they say, no, it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, other folks are like, yeah, well, we'll see what happens. But my biggest thing, uh, through all of this is uh, is is that you know the party that's currently in power needs to step up and pass it. Uh, if Democrats do not end cannabis prohibition, I do not foresee them uh, winning in the midterm elections. They need to get their shit together, for lack of a better word. Interesting thing about the Moore Act, it only got two Republican votes, but yeah. it just so happens that two of them came from Florida. Yeah, yeah. yeah Brian Mast and. Um, <laughs> Matt Gates uh, voted for the, uh, the the Moore Act, and so that's why it won by two, 220 to 204. There we go. And uh, that, that's a, a very interesting thing. In, in, in one, because there's only two Republicans that voted it, even though there is bipartisan support outside of the, the voting time. But a lot of people are talking about the fact that they are in favor of it when it comes to vote. Even Representative Nancy Mace, who was on our show last week, voted it down. However, Brian Mast, who is a co-sponsor of her bill, voted for the Moore Act. Well, I could because they want to have a, they want to have more bills to to compare and compress, so they can go ahead and merge them together, get the best parts of all of them, and move them forward. So that's why you want to have as much uh, 
legislation out there that you can pick from as far as the pieces are concerned to improve the thing forward. So voting sometimes can be uh, misleading, so to speak. And I, I, I applaud uh, I applaud Matt Gates for, for voting for it. I, sorry, I joked on that. And uh, and Brian, uh, Representative Mast, we, we appreciate your help. We need to talk to our representatives in regards to how this thing is going to move forward in the Senate, though. Now, I'd love to have Marco Rubio on and talk to him. I think there's less chance of that happening than if, say, for instance, we get we ask Val Demings. She probably would come on. But I, I don't I don't foresee Marco coming on the show. Do you do you see that, Chris? <laughs> I, I, look, I, as far as, you know, Marco Rubio and even uh, Senator Scott, uh, what we've seen is that they, you know, when it comes to cannabis prohibition, uh, they, they're just not seeing the light. Uh, you know, you can send them a million and one emails and they are just not stepping up to the plate and doing what they need to do uh, for their constituents. But, you know, when you mentioned Val Demings there, she's challenging Marco Rubio. And although she may have voted for the Morat, there was a key piece of legislation and amendment to this uh, that she voted down. And, it, and I'm kind of pissed off at her about it. It was an amendment uh, it was her and 12 Democrat, uh, 11 other Democrats broke rank and voted with all the Republicans that, uh, you know, uh, it, it would have barred marijuana use as a reason to deny federal security clearance. So basically, you know, if people like myself or you were ever appointed to a federal government position, you know, uh, we can't get security clearance because of cannabis use. And and this was an amazing amendment that uh, could have got passed in with the Moore Act, and she voted it down. And so, uh, you know, it, it seems like for every good thing she does that makes me want to vote for her, she does something else that makes me want to take a step back and, and, and you know, find someone else in the Democratic primary to support. Um, yeah. So, so I, I'm not happy with her vote uh, uh, this week. You know, she kind of, you, know, uh, you know, soured uh, the taste in my mouth with, with uh, voting down that amendment. Yeah, it's, it's all about the sausage, right? If, if, you, if you saw how sausage was made, probably you wouldn't eat it. That's why they always say, Lawmaking is all about the same thing as sausage making. If you saw how it was working, you realize it's a messy process and it doesn't look appetizing at all. And you only hope that the uh, final product will be something that's palatable. And oftentimes it isn't, especially when it comes to overregulation, which we see time and time and time again with cannabis, which actually causes the legacy market to thrive for many, many reasons, even for, even for people who are, who are good folks who want to be in the system. And we had... Um, uh, a bill, a, a uh, the uh, Pigford Act license uh, that was had a application window uh, last week, and uh, there were not that many applications. Uh, I can understand why they, of course, they have a huge uh, barrier for admission, over one hundred and forty-two thousand dollars for the application alone, and of course they have to have a lot more money behind them. And the folks who are qualified were in a lawsuit from the 1990s, which means if they were in their 40s or 50s, they're in their 70s or 80s right now. And that not exactly is the best population for starting a new business and starting a new career. But that is what we're dealing with. And I am hoping that these people who did get in uh, get a chance to uh, grow with it and, and protect themselves from the forces that are, want to take those licenses away, especially if they get involved in anybody who is offering them money on a, a a promissory note basis to in order to get them to have enough money to get this thing started because if they miss one payment you might see a shift of ownership again and it won't be a minority license anymore but let's keep our fingers crossed well that's that's definitely interesting developments there gary is there a place where people you know members of the public can go to find out who's uh, applied for uh, the pick for license i mean you know it feels oftentimes in florida there's, there's not a lot of transparency in, in how these things shake out and the omu website is not uh, the best place for reliable information sometimes yeah they have not published anywhere the list of the uh, applications that are already out in part because of the uh, the way the process is they want to make certain it is totally uh unaffected by outside sources, so to speak. Gotcha, gotcha, so okay. We're, we're hoping they actually get this application process right because I have seen time and time again, when the state has a number of things to uh, vote on, they'll put somebody who's an outlier that changes the whole framework as to who's got the best application, who's got the worst application, and you end up switching things out where if you had two people who were tied, all of a sudden some, something comes through, the, the score is far higher than it usually is for one person or too low for the other one that is suddenly 
you know, outside of where everybody else is as far as scoring is concerned, and they push one person in. Yes, they do choose winners and losers. There is no doubt about that. It happens time and time again. We have to do everything we can, and we're hoping that's what we do. We did try getting the, the director of OMMU on as a, as a guest, and the first thing he said was, I have to check with my lawyers. So I do invite you to come on, Mr. Director, with your lawyers so they can tap you every time you start saying things they don't want you to say. That's fine. We just want to talk to you. <laughs> well, you know, uh, speaking of winners and losers, you know, around the country, uh, there are states that are changing their cannabis laws. And, uh, you know, in, in Georgia right now, uh, under their state law, those with qualifying medical conditions can now possess up to 20 ounces of infused cannabis oils uh, containing not more than 5% THC. So they got a 5% THC cap uh, in Georgia. And legislation is pending uh, with their House and Senate bills. Uh, related to class one and class two production licenses uh, to eliminate, you know, the previous uh, application process they have. And, and so, you know, we'll see how all that shakes out in Georgia as their, their, you know, very limited system develops. But, you know, the, uh, in New Hampshire, uh, their house uh, recently voted uh, to legalize the possession of cannabis for adults and establish a retail sales system. And now they're sending their bill off to the Senate in Pennsylvania, uh, their Senate uh, Law and Justice Committee, uh, you know, has has been doing research and looking forward uh, to move forward with adult use. In South Carolina, uh, uh, you know, uh, their uh, uh, Compassionate Care Act passed the Senate weeks ago, and you know, there's only a few weeks left for the House to take it up and pass it. So we'll see uh, where they land. In South Dakota, uh, their governor, who you know has been, uh, uh, you know, against. Uh, you know, the, the way their system has been set up, uh, you know, veto legislation that would have authorized the automatic removal of marijuana related convictions from a person's background check. She said that enacting that reform would set a bad precedent, uh, which, you know, I just don't get. So, you know, they, they legalized uh, proving four plants, growing four plants in South Dakota, but then the governor vetoes, uh, you know, the, the expungement of background checks. And, and you know, in, in uh, for Utah, uh, you know, that's a, a state that, you know, you don't necessarily think is very liberal and, and you don't, you know, you think of a liberal hotbed uh, when it comes to move forward. But Utah expanded qualifying conditions to include chronic pain for anyone who otherwise would be prescribed opioids and they pass public employee uh, employment protections. So the things that we're trying to do here in Florida, Utah got it right. So it's time for the Florida GOP to take a, a, a page out of the book of their uh, their colleagues over out west and, and get it together. And I think one of the biggest things happening this week, is, uh, as far as you know, state developments, is the state of Maryland uh, actually passed a bill that will now uh, put it to the voters in November to uh, legalize adult use in the state of Maryland with retail sales. So uh, you'll see Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, uh, you know, New Jersey, New York, uh, you know, you're seeing this trend along the eastern seaboard uh, of adult use states, and it stops right at the Carolinas. The Carolinas and Georgia really are the last bastion. North Carolina in particular is that last bastion of prohibition on the eastern seaboard. Uh, you know, so my, my theme for next year's session is going to be legislators read the damn room. <laughs> Take a look and see what's going on all around us right now. Georgia, for God's sakes, U Utah, the bastion of conservatism, or even the sand is red. It, it, they have jumped, are starting to jump ahead of us. How can this be? We had a couple years start on these folks, and we are lying dormant. We're not getting new licenses. We're getting more uh, stringent regulations. They're cutting back on the amount of medicine people can have, where other people are extending how much people can have doesn't make any sense. Florida, read the damn room. Yeah. Well, before we, we, we leave out today, I just want to make a few announcements. Uh, again, you know, thank you for everyone who's watching the rotation live. You can always uh, watch it on our website, suncoastnormal.org. You can also watch on our social media channels on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, and Twitter. Uh, you can go back and download past episodes on Facebook, Pandora, SoundCloud, Spotify, Amazon, and iTunes. Uh, you know, and then, of course, we can't do this without you. So we need your support, not just giving us the likes and following us on social media, but we need you to become a member of Suncoast Normal. Uh, 
Um, you know, we don't take any money uh, as as board members to do this. We put all the, the membership dues, all the money back into the organization. And we do that because we want you, the people, to uh, be informed. We want to continue to move the needle forward when it comes to uh, cannabis prohibition and ending it. And to that note, we are stepping up. And we are having a business expo, April 23rd. You go to our website, suncoastnormal.org, for tickets and info. Uh, if you're interested in having a vendor table, they are selling out fast. Uh, you may want to get with us this week because there's no guarantee we're going to have space next week. So definitely step up. You can get a vendor table for as little as $50. Uh, and we are wrapping up our expo sponsorships this week. So if you're interested in getting in on this, we have a lot of great organizations and cannabis businesses uh, from around the, the state. Uh, this is not your typical business expo where you see big M MMTCs, uh, you know, just advocating for their products. This is a lot of small business owners, and you're going to get to hear on some amazing panels. And we're actually going to have some of our panelists coming on the show in the, in the coming weeks leading up to the expo and showcasing them uh, on social media. But I think it's important uh, for you to step up, be a part of this. General admission is actually free. So you download a free ticket, uh, join us for the expo. If you want to get access uh, to our Women in Cannabis uh, uh, breakfast and panel, uh, that, that has a small fee. And then we have an all-access pass as well, uh, which you can get into all the panels and hear some amazing speakers. Gary and myself will be moderating some of these panels, so I'm pretty excited uh, for the amazing list of doctors, patients, uh, small business owners, uh, entrepreneurs, and even politicians that will be joining us uh, to talk about some awesome subjects, whether it's uh, being a woman in cannabis or starting a cannabis business in Florida or talking about the politics of cannabis or even how to use medical marijuana to live a healthy lifestyle. So, you know, I just wanted to leave our, our listeners with that today. And before we go, um, I wanted to see if uh, we could bring Connie back on just to say a few words. I know Connie's having some issues uh, with her camera. Connie, uh, we got you uh, verbally. So uh, as we close out, I just wanted to uh, bring you back and, and say uh, uh, bye to our listeners and stuff and uh, where they could go to help you out. I got the link up here, uh, ConnieForCouncil.info. Uh, uh, Connie, uh, you know, any last words you want to leave with the folks? I just thank you so much. It's been a great partnership, friendship with you, Chris. I wish you always the best, uh, best in everything that you're putting your hands on. And for the community, organizing, fighting the power, and building power. So Tuesday, up or down, we're going to keep on moving. Thank you again. All right. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for jumping into rotation with us. And uh, Gary, myself, Carlos, we will see everyone next week. Peace and yeah, blessings. Fight the powers that be. Yes. <laughs>